Hi church, Pastor John here. Before we start, there are a couple of announcements to make. This is our last online service video for the time being. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be moving to online Zoom worship gatherings together on Friday mornings from 11 a.m. to 12.15 p.m. We're going to start that next week, April 9th. So please join us for that. Now, if you miss, we're still going to have the audio of these sermons podcasted, but we won't be sending out online service videos like this. I also want to invite you as a member of Redeemer Ally to join us for Easter on Sunday, April 4th from 7 a.m. to 7.30 a.m., just for 30 minutes before work begins for most people. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together. This is Passion Week. And this coming Sunday, we're going to celebrate that Jesus is risen. So please join us from 7 a.m. to 7.30 a.m. You'll see a link in your email, your weekly email, so that you can be a part of that Zoom together on Sunday, Easter Sunday, 7 a.m. to 7.30 a.m. And then, for those who can't make it to our Thursday night gatherings, we're going to have Friday morning Zooms from 11 a.m., to 12.15 p.m. where we can hear the word preached, sing together, pray together. Please join us for those. Now, if you have a Bible, open it up. We're in Genesis 37 and 38. And before we begin, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that you have spoken. You've spoken most clearly in your Son, You've shown us who you are. You've told us who you are most clearly in Jesus. And this book, this book points us to him. It's about him. This is where we come to know what you are like in him. So help us see, Lord. Please help us see. Bless this time. I pray that you would help me as I preach and that you would make this a help to those who hear that you would draw attention to yourself. And it's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. So again, we're now in Genesis 37 and 38. Again, we have two chapters filled with sin from the chosen family. So more darkness, lots of darkness. And more of God working and willing what is pleasing in His sight, making sure that the promises he has made through the offspring of Abraham come to pass. And we see in all this sin and darkness, God working and willing to make sure that he is the only one who gets to boast in our salvation. We're going to take this sermon in two parts. So first we're going to talk about what is happening in Genesis 37 and 38, and then we're going to talk about why? Why are, why are these events recorded the way that they are? Why did they happen this way? So we're going to first talk about what's happening, and we're going to do that in two parts. Joseph's enslavement, that's Genesis 37, and Judah's family line in Genesis 38. And then we're going to talk about why. Why is it happening this way? And there are two things we're going to see there. God is preserving all boasting. For himself. God is preserving all boasting for himself, and God is preserving the offspring that's been promised. God's preserving the offspring that's been promised. That's where we're going in Genesis 37 
and 38. So let's begin by talking about what is happening. And let's begin with Joseph's enslavement. So in chapter 37 of Genesis, we start dealing with Jacob's children, primarily Joseph. You see in verse 2, it says, these are the generations of Jacob. What's that, what that is telling us is that now we're about to deal with Jacob's descendants. His children are the ones who are going to take center stage from now on in the book of Genesis, especially Joseph. Now, Joseph's 17 years old at this point in the story. And Genesis 37 begins by telling us the story of how his brothers come to hate him. And the first reason is this. It's in verse 2. You can see that after shepherding with his brothers, Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So we don't know what the report was. His brothers are clearly pretty nasty guys. We've seen that in the preceding chapters. We're going to see it in this chapter. It's not hard to imagine that Joseph would have had plenty of bad to tell his father about them. But of course... Joseph telling on them doesn't give them good feelings towards Joseph. They hate him. The second reason his brothers hate him is because Jacob, who's also called Israel, loves Joseph more than the other brothers. We see that in verses 3 and 4. In fact, he gives him a special coat to show it. His brothers are always having to see Joseph wearing this coat that signifies Jacob loves him most. And so his brothers hate him. Now Jacob is playing favorites again. He did this with his wives. He loved Rachel more than Leah. And he's oblivious, isn't he? It already caused significant anguish in this family that he loved Rachel more than Leah. Now he's doing it again. He's sowing seeds in his sons that will grow up into murderous plants. He's loving Joseph more than the other children. That's not just unwise. That's sinful. In James chapter 2, verse 9, it says that partiality in the church, that means playing favorites in church. Like when a rich person comes in and they're treated better or someone with high social standing in the world comes into the church and they get shown favor, that's playing favorites, that's partiality. God says that's wicked. It's wicked in the church. It's wicked in a family. So hear that, parents. Hear that. Be very careful. You might find that you have more interests in common with one child than another, but don't play favorites. God is an impartial God towards his children. When you approach him, he doesn't wish you were a different child. His love is overflowing in full barrels towards you. Now, there's one more reason that Joseph's brothers hate him. He tells them about dreams that he's been having. Now, in one dream that Joseph has, he and his brothers are binding sheaves. That means that they're gathering grain into bundles. And Joseph's bundle of grain in the dream stands up on one end and his brother's sheaves bow down to it. And Joseph has another dream. And in the dream, the sun and the moon and 11 stars. Now it's not hard to see what the imagery is here. The sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down to Joseph. And he tells his father and brothers, and they hate it. Even his father rebukes him for it. You see this in verse 10. 
What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? Verse 11 tells us that his brothers were jealous of him. They're jealous. These brothers want their father's love and they want to be great. Joseph's dreams are prophecy. They are telling Joseph the future. Like all prophecy, you and I are supposed to test impressions that we receive, whether those are in visions or in dreams. We're supposed to test them by God's word. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. Now this is a side note. God can give people dreams, visions. He did with Joseph. He does it in the New Testament. But here's a warning. One of the marks of false teachers in the New Testament is that they go on and on about their visions. Colossians 2.18 says they go on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds and not holding fast to the head, Christ. So if you find someone who's going on and on about their visions, their great prophetic dreams of what the Lord is going to do, and all he's going to provide for you and your community that you're in, but they're not tethered to this book. They're not double knot tied to this book. They are false. They're a false teacher. They're like headless bodies walking around. That's what it says, not holding fast to the head who's Christ. And this world is filled with teachers like this. So beware. Beware. Test everything with the scriptures and stay attached to this book and attached to our head, Jesus Christ. Now, Joseph doesn't have written scriptures to test his dreams by. What he has is what his father has told him about God's faithfulness in his life. Joseph's just having dreams and he's telling his brothers and his family and his mother and father what's happening. Now, Jacob rebukes Joseph. And this is strange, isn't it? Because Jacob himself has had dreams from God before. And Jacob himself was a younger brother who ruled over his older. This is strange that Jacob would rebuke Joseph for something like this. And it's also so strange that Jacob doesn't recognize that all of this is making the brothers jealous. How could he be so oblivious? He should have known his own brother Esau wanted to kill him. And so do Joseph's. But instead of recognizing what he has done through his favoritism, he sends Joseph, our text tells us, alone to see how the brothers are doing, these murderous brothers are doing. Now the brothers are in the north in Dothan taking care of their flocks. And they see Joseph from a distance, probably because of his coat. He was wearing it. Verses 19 through 20, they decide to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. So they think... By killing Joseph, they can kill this prophecy. 
You cannot stop God from doing what he wants to do. You can commit great evil trying, but you will find in the end that you have done exactly what he's desired. That's true of Joseph's brothers. We're going to see by the end of the book. That's true even of Satan, who played a major role in the week that we're remembering right now in getting Jesus to the cross was the most decisive defeat of Satan. You cannot stop God. He cannot be stopped. What a God we have. Now Judah comes up with the idea to sell Joseph to Ishmaelite traders who are going down to Egypt. The brothers agree, Joseph is sold. And we see that in verse 36, eventually Joseph will be brought to Egypt. He'll be sold as a slave and bought by a man named Potiphar, who's captain of Pharaoh's guard. The brothers take Joseph's coat this symbol that their father has loved this son the most. They cover it in goat's blood, and they make Jacob, Israel, believe that an animal has killed Joseph. How spiteful, hard-hearted are these men? They're willing to kill their own brother. They sell him as a slave, never to be seen again, so they think. And then they make their father grieve the death of his son. This is great wickedness. And the end result of chapter 37 is that Joseph is in Egypt. And someday that will mean the salvation of this family. That's chapter 37. Let's talk about chapter 38, Judah's family line. Now this is an unsavory tale. It's in our Bibles means it's important. So in verse 1, chapter 38, it tells us that at that time, so it's saying right after Judah suggested they sell their brother into slavery, he marries a Canaanite woman, and he has three sons through her, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now when Ur grows up many years later, Judah gives him a wife named Tamar. Our text tells us that Ur is wicked, we don't know in what ways, but he has to be pretty wicked if God's going to kill him out of all the people in this family who deserve to die. This one is so wicked, God kills him. That's in verse 7. Now, as was custom, Tamar is given to Onan, who's the second son. And Onan and her, when they have a son that son would be counted as the firstborn's heir. So he would be Ur's heir. You got it? That's what's happening here. Tamar is given to Onan so that they can have a child, and that son would be Ur's, the firstborn's heir. Judah says to Onan in verse 8, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, and so he made sure that she did not get pregnant. And so God killed Onan too. That's verse 10. Now at this point, Judah's afraid of Tamar. He does not want to give her to his youngest son, Shelah. But of course, the problem wasn't Tamar. It was the wickedness of his own family. We don't know what would have happened if he had given Shelah 
to her. But at any rate, he sends Tamar off to live with her own father. And when Shelah grows up, Judah does not give Tamar to him. So Tamar knows she's being cut out of this family of promise. She's being cut out of having any hand in their promised offspring. Now the text tells us that Judah's wife dies and he goes to shear sheep at a place called Timnah. Tamar hears this and she dresses up like a prostitute with a veil over her face. And she had to know the kind of man that Judah was because it works. Judah sees her and he asks to sleep with her. He says he'll send her a goat if she does. But as a pledge, until he sends this goat, she makes him give her his signet. That's the stamp that he wears of his authority, the cord it's attached to, and the staff in his hand. And he does. He gives them to her as a pledge. Now, when Judah sends his friend later on with a goat to get the signet, the cord, and the staff back, the prostitute isn't at Timnah. And Judah doesn't look very hard for her because he doesn't want to look like a fool. Verse 23 tells us that. But Tamar is pregnant. After three months, it's apparent, it's clear that she's pregnant. And someone tells Judah that his daughter-in-law is pregnant by immorality. You see that? That's verse 24. And Judah, with all the moral authority he has, says, Bring her out and let her be burned. So it'd be a very dramatic scene because as they're taking her out of her home to burn her, verses 25 and 26 say that Tamar sends someone with the signet, the cord, and the staff to Judah with a message. 25 and 26. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. Now, it doesn't take much to be more righteous than Judah, but Judah recognizes that Tamar is. So how is she more righteous than Judah? Here's how. Tamar's concern is not first that she would have a husband. That doesn't explain why she does what she did. She doesn't get a husband out of it. Tamar's concern is that she would be the mother of the firstborn line in Judah's family. Do you follow that? She's not trying to get married. She's trying to get pregnant so that she can carry on the line of the firstborn of Judah's family. You'll see in the text, the word offspring shows up three times in this chapter. That's a really important word in the book of Genesis. Do you remember all the times that offspring shows up in this book? The first time, it's when God says to Eve, Eve, your offspring will be at war with the serpent. The serpent will strike his heel and your offspring will crush his head. And then in Genesis 12, we see God promises Abraham, Abraham. Through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that promise is passed to Isaac. Your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. To Jacob, through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's the last time we've heard this word used. In Genesis 35, 
when God promised Jacob his offspring would possess the land. And here we see it three times, offspring. Tamar is more concerned with the offspring of Abraham through Judah than Judah is. She's more righteous than him. She's pregnant with twins. Do you see that? This is verse 27. One starts to come out. So they tie a red string around his wrist so that they can identify him as the firstborn. But then the other baby pushes his way out first instead. So they call that child Perez. Perez means to break through. So he broke through and Perez became the firstborn. This is a strange story. We're seeing the younger displacing the older again. That's a theme in Genesis, isn't it? Why? Why is this a theme? Why does this keep happening? Let's talk about why things do, or why things occur the way they do in this chapter. Why God is working in the ways that he's working. We're going to look at two. God has more than two purposes, always. But here, too, we're going to see. The first is this. God is preserving all boasting for himself. God is preserving all boasting for himself. In Genesis chapter 37 and in Genesis chapter 38, both chapters, we have two younger sons taking leadership in the family. That was not the way that things were supposed to work. Joseph is the 11th in line. He's the second youngest son. If you're the 11th in line, you're not going to rule the family. That's not how the world works. I mean, even Jacob, who should have known better, he was younger and put over his brother. He should know better. But even Jacob is saying, listen, Joseph, that's not how it works. You're the 11th in line. But God loves to work to cut against the grain of this world. He's going to use this 11th born boy to rule the known world and to rescue this family. And then when you get to the very end of our passage, we just talked about it, this strange section about Perez, who technically didn't come out first, but he takes precedent over his brother. It's very similar to Jacob and Esau, isn't it? The child who is supposed to have rights as the firstborn, Zerah, he won't. Perez will have the rights of the firstborn. Perez, this twin who should have been second in line, he's the line of David. His descendants will be the kings of Israel and eventually Jesus in the flesh. This is just another story in Genesis 38 of the proper order of things by the world's expectations being overturned by God as he works his plan of salvation. So why does this kind of thing keep happening? Why? Clearly, God loves to overturn the world's wisdom when he works salvation. Why is that? We talked about this text three weeks ago. If you can, turn to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. We're going to look at this text, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, because it explains why God does this sort of thing. It explains why he does it. If again and again God is making younger sons rulers, he's making barren women mothers, he's making nomad shepherds into a great kingdom, we need to ask why. Why does he do things the wrong way, according to this world? 
1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Paul is speaking to Christians, and he's explaining to them the kind of people they are, the kind of people they were. Listen to what he says. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's not trying to flatter them here. He's saying, you guys know you weren't important people. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, that's you and me, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, you and me, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that, here's the purpose, the why, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. And he has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So if God worked salvation according to the way the world thinks it should happen, then men and women would come to the conclusion that they've worked salvation for themselves. If strong people win salvation, if rich people buy salvation, if wise people figure out salvation for themselves, then they will be able to boast in themselves. But God doesn't want people to boast in themselves. He wants people to boast in Him, so He works in a way as to make it clear His alone is the glory. God says, oh, so great families come from virile young men and fertile young women? I'll make the greatest family from an old man and a barren woman. The eyes of the world are on the rich and the famous and the powerful. My eyes will be on the undeserving and the humble. The world expects great heroes to be the family of blessing. I'll choose sinful shepherds. The firstborn should rule, I'll choose the youngest. The giant is supposed to win the fight, I'll win with the shepherd boy. The king is supposed to show the greatness of who he is by killing all his enemies, my king will show the height of his greatness by dying for them. Again and again and again and again in the scripture, we see this is the way that God shows his glory. He's working in a way that the world does not work. When he does that, he's making clear the world didn't do the work. So all boasting, all credit goes to him. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will not give to another. glory. That's the display of all of God's worth. That's his glory. It's the showing of how much worth and value and beauty and goodness he has. And he's not going to share it with anyone. He's going to get the credit for his own worthiness. Isaiah 43, 6 through 7, God says this, 
I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You hear that? You were created for God's glory. You were created to show His great worth. All that has been created exists to show His greatness, beauty, goodness. Not anyone else's. Not even yours. This world is about Him being known and loved and seen as glorious. That's why the world is here. To show off his glory. That doesn't make him selfish. That doesn't make him selfish to want all the glory to go to him. And here's why. Knowing him and loving him and seeing him as glorious is where you will experience the most joy in life you could ever have. Before there was anything but God, God was always overflowing with infinite explosive delight in himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. Creation is him sharing that overflowing infinite delight with creatures. If God were to let you live for your glory, or if God were to share his glory, or if God were not to make sure that all the boasting belongs to him, he wouldn't be loving us. Because no other glory will satisfy you forever. Treasuring his glory will. God is working in a way so that all boasting is his. He's working in ways the world doesn't work so that it's clear the work is his. And so is the glory. God is preserving all boasting for himself. And here's the second reason why these chapters tell us what they do. God is preserving the offspring that's been promised. God's preserving the offspring that's been promised. So in Genesis 38, the story of Judah and Tamar, it seems to come in a strange place, doesn't it? Genesis 37 starts the story of Joseph. Then Genesis 39 through 50 will finish the story of Joseph. But right here, plopped right at the start in Genesis 38 is this story. So what's going on? Why are Judah and Tamar dropped in here? Genesis 38 is about continuing. It's about God continuing the line of Judah that would eventually become the line of kings. That's what Genesis 38 is about. The story of Joseph is how this family is preserved. Joseph is sent ahead to Egypt to save this family because the offspring of this family is going to save the world. The story of Joseph is about the preservation of the promised offspring who would bless the world through Genesis 38. That's why these chapters are together. God is keeping his promise to bless the world through the offspring of Abraham, through this family's offspring, and Jesus, the offspring of Judah, through Perez, 
He's that offspring who secures all the blessings of God for us. It's what he's doing on the cross. He's grabbing up all of God's blessings to give to those who trust in him as he takes the wrath of God for sinners in their place. That's what's happening. God is working to preserve the offspring, to make sure that happens. That Jesus comes, this offspring comes, who secures all the blessing for us. But here's an interesting twist. When we trust in Jesus, we become the offspring of Abraham as well. Listen to Galatians 3, 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. You are Abraham's offspring. And just like God preserved the offspring to get to Jesus, he'll preserve you. God was ensuring that his promises would come to pass by preserving the offspring. And now if you are an offspring of Abraham through Jesus, he will make sure you're preserved so that all the blessing he's promised comes to you in the life to come. Listen to this. I'm just going to read these three texts from the New Testament. Hear God's preserving faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 1.7 You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24 now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it. Philippians 1.6 I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you see that God is faithful to preserve what he starts? See the preserving work of God. He will make sure that all who truly trust in his son will be kept trusting him until all the promises are fully delivered when he comes again. This is an important promise if you're tired. 2020 has been a long year. 2021 keeps bringing the hits. If you're tired, if you don't know where you're going to get the resources to finish, how do I continue on, God? How do I continue on being faithful? The gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. Jesus says that. Walking with Christ is hard. You need to know that God has committed himself to preserve you to the end. God is faithful. He will surely do it. Just like he preserved the offspring of Abraham to bring Christ to us, he will preserve you, the offspring of Abraham, to make sure that all the blessings Christ gathered up for you are given. He'll do it. So don't despair. When you feel tempted to, I don't have the resources to finish, God. 
cast yourself on him. You don't have the resources, but he does, and he's committed himself to preserving you and keeping you safe. What a God! What promises! What a preserving, keeping, good God. And when he does preserve us, blameless to the end, then he will deserve all the credit and all the glory, and we will receive all the benefits of enjoying that glory through his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these chapters. Thank you for preserving the promised offspring. You kept the promised offspring safe. You kept the promise safe all the way through to Jesus. Nothing could stop you. Even as we celebrate this Passion Week, this week where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper, he told his disciples what would happen. He was going to pour out his blood for the new covenant to secure us. He would go to the cross. And in what looked like the most grievous sin ever committed, which was the most grievous sin ever committed, you accomplished your perfect purposes. You have made us offspring of Abraham. And if you did not spare him, how will you not with him? Graciously give us all things that we need to be preserved to the end and then to receive blessings with you forevermore. Thank you, Father, for hearing us. Would you alone receive the glory? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, church.